Morning, church. Blessed to be with you this morning. I'm looking forward to sharing with you from God's Word. I'm going to be speaking on the topic of servanthood. The title of the service, uh, the title of the sermon is uh, called, What Were You Arguing About? Life Lessons on Servanthood from Jesus and the Disciples. My uh, text is going to be based largely in uh, Mark chapter 9 beginning in verse 33, so I welcome you to turn there. While, while you're going there, I just, I had a flashback this morning as we sang, what was it, four or five Chris Tomlin songs in a row, uh, of how uh, at one point the Lord actually used me in uh, Chris Tomlin's life um, to, to be able to um, basically be a thorn in the flesh to him, and uh, I just thought I would share that real quickly. Uh, I was able to annoy him in a very special way, and... Uh, <laughs> I was actually at the Christian Booksellers Convention in Nashville, Tennessee about 10 years ago. I've worked in Christian publishing for about 24 years, and there are a lot of, of young, uh, up-and-coming, aspiring authors uh, who go there, and they, they've got a new book out, and they're all excited about it. They think their little book's going to change the world, and you know, so I, I go to these uh, trade shows, these events, and industry events, and I was at this, uh, this industry event, and, and I saw this uh, guy sitting behind a, a book signing table with some books out in front of him, had cool hair, and, and I, uh, you know, I was just walking past, and, and this publicist kind of came over to me, and she said, would you like to meet Chris Tomlin? Well, I'd never heard of him. I didn't know who he was, and the name didn't mean anything to me at all, and my first response was going to be, not really, um, but, you know, but, but I thought, hey, this poor guy is sitting over here, you know, and he, he wants somebody to come talk to him about his book, so I thought maybe I can help encourage him, inspire him a little bit, you know, help him along in his career or something, and so I went over and uh, started talking to him, and, and I said, so, so you're an author, huh? He said, um, no, not, not really, um, I, I'm more of a singer. I said, oh, really? Uh, are you a new artist? Uh, um, well, no, no, I've uh, been around about, uh, about 15 years. I said, oh, really? Wow. Uh, write any of your own songs? Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, I, uh, well, pretty much all of them. Yeah, I, yeah, pretty much right all my own songs, and uh, I don't know why I just felt compelled to, to give him some advice and to share some sage wisdom with him. It's just this overwhelming feeling. I said, you know, uh, the trend right now in Christian music seems to be uh, worship songs. You ever thought about writing worship songs? And it was just this deer in the headlights look that he gave me. It just blink, blink. <laughs> and he said, uh, you, you know, let me just sign a book for you here. Please, please read this. This will probably help explain a little bit about who I am and what I do. And it was only like, you know, the next week that I found out he was already a like mega celebrity and I just wasn't on my radar. So anyway, at some point in his life, God probably decided that uh, he needed to be humbled in some way by, <laughs> by an idiot. So... <laughs> Anyway, so speaking on servanthood, uh, let's look at the, uh, the scenario that plays out in Mark chapter 9, uh, beginning in verse 33. Jesus is with his disciples, and it says, They came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? I'm reading from the ESV here. The 
New International Version puts it a little differently. It says, what were you arguing about? What were you arguing about as you, as you walked on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and he put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Now there's a parallel passage to this I'd like you to turn over to and look at as well. This is in uh, Luke chapter 9. If you turn forward to Luke chapter 9, it's worded a little bit differently here, and and we get an insight uh, on this. In verse 46 of Luke 9, it says, An argument arose among them as to which was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you is the is the one who is the great who is who is great Um, this question that jesus asks here uh, what were you disputing what were you arguing about Uh, came to my attention through a a process of study that i was doing through the bible and initially as i was studying through the old testament uh, some years ago and, and doing my own personal bible study i noticed an odd occurrence that I found a little bit baffling, and that was that in the Old Testament, there were many occurrences where God asked individuals questions. And I thought that was very fascinating, because one of the doctrines we know to be true of God is that he's omniscient. He knows all things. And so I started to write down every time I found a question that God asked a person, and I tried to identify what the purpose of that question was. So, for example, God asks Abraham, where is your wife, Sarah? And he asks Moses, what is in your hand? And he asks Elijah in the cave, what are you doing here? And he asks Balaam, who are these men with you? And he asks Jonah, do you have a right to be angry? And he asks Adam, where are you? All these questions. And so I actually ended up outlining it. And when I wrote down the topics that were included in those questions, I thought, my goodness, this looks like a systematic theology manual. Almost all the major doctrines of the Christian faith are being addressed in these questions that God asks. Well, then I thought about how Jesus was the master at asking questions. And all the way through his teaching and his interaction with the people and with the disciples, he would ask questions. In fact, many times when Jesus was asked a question, he wouldn't respond with an answer. He would respond with another question. So when the man asks him, for example, good teacher, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus doesn't give him a a didactic teaching. He says, why do you call me good? And so I've learned an awful lot about teaching through the art of asking questions, from watching the fact that God teaches us through asking questions, and Jesus teaches through asking questions. And you can tell someone what you believe. You can tell someone what they should believe, but sometimes, especially with children, especially with teenagers, 
it's more effective, it's more powerful to learn how to guide them through a process of thinking it through for themselves, of learning how to ask the right questions about an issue. So when we see this in Mark chapter 9, and he says, what, what were you discussing? What were you disputing? What were you arguing about? Um, the, the question is, does, does Jesus not know what they were talking about? Is this an informational question for Jesus? Is, is he uh, bewildered about the conversation? Well, we're told in Luke, in Luke 9 that he knew what they were talking about. He knew that they were disputing and they were arguing about which one was the greatest. So he asked them the question. So what is the purpose of these questions? And, and one of the things that I've taken is, as a presupposition or an assumption into the study of the questions God asks and the questions that Jesus asks is that I believe God never asks anything capriciously or arbitrarily or without purpose. There's always a purpose or a meaning or a reason for asking the questions that he does. And Jesus said that we would give an account on the day of judgment for every idle word that we speak. So I don't think Jesus ever spoke idle words. I don't think God ever spoke idle words. There's a reason for it. So if God knows the answer to these questions before he asks them, then who is the question for? Well, it's obviously for the person being asked the question, for them to think about and consider their assumptions and their biases and their motives. But then because it's recorded in Holy Scripture, there must be something for us to consider in this as well. There's something that God wants us to think about. So when we read these questions, we should stop and think, this question is also for me. There's a life application for me in this question as well. So when God asks this question, what, what were you arguing about? What were you disputing about? We should think about ourselves and put ourselves in this context as it relates to the scenario with the disciples and ask ourselves, in what way are we similar to these disciples? In what way are we motivated by the same kinds of things that they were motivated by. The disciples had joined Jesus because they recognized him as being the Messiah, and their understanding of the Messiah was that he was to be a king, he was to be a ruler. He was supposed to be someone who would liberate Israel from the oppression of Rome. And in their mind, this kingdom that Jesus was building looked an awful lot like thrones and crowns and dominion and power and prestige and honor. They didn't understand that the path to glory for the Lord Jesus Christ had a cross in the middle of it, and that there was going to be suffering and pain and death. This wasn't what they had bargained for. This wasn't what they had signed up for. Their mentality was that there were going to be positions of rulership and leadership that were going to be given to the, these disciples, because they were the, the core they were going to be put in strategic cabinet positions in the new administration, and they wanted the chiefest of places. And so Jesus asks him this. Now, the irony of this in context is that in both Mark and Luke's account, it places this in the narrative right after the disciples had failed to drive out a demon. And so Jesus actually had chided them for their, their lack of of faith and, and their lack of prayer and, uh, and, and lack of uh, ability to rely solely on God and how they had trusted in their own strength and their own ability to be able to do the work of the Spirit. And Jesus was trying to teach them that you can never do the work of the Spirit in your flesh. 
It is God who brings about the victory. It is God who, who delivers. And so Jesus takes a child, he takes him in his arm, and he says, whoever receives one like this receives me, and whoever receives me receives my father. And there's this emphasis on the importance of the, the child. Jesus said, let the little children come to me. Hinder them not, because the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Jesus put a high esteem on these children. Well, the culture at that time did not put a high esteem on children. In fact, in the Aramaic language, the words child and servant were synonymous. A child was viewed as someone who's there to serve, not as one who is to be served. And Jesus turns the table, as he did so many times, as was his custom in his teaching, this this upside-down message, this upside-down kingdom that he was speaking about, that he was presenting. He's giving prominence to the lowest. He's giving prominence to the least. This was totally contra to the mentality of the disciples. And Jesus modeled this servanthood for his disciples throughout his life, and we see that most clearly within the illustration of washing the disciples' feet at the Last Supper. When he took the basin and the towel, he took the most menial of tasks, the lowest of servant activities, and he demonstrated that for the disciples. Then he asks them in John uh, chapter 13, verse 12, do you understand what I have done to you? And I I think it's kind of clear from the context they didn't really understand what Jesus was doing for them. I mean, Peter says, well, hey, if you're going to wash my feet, wash my head and wash my hands and my face. And, you know, Jesus, Jesus says no. In verse 13 of uh, John 13, he says this, You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. We have an example of the disciples of Jesus coming to Jesus looking for positions of prominence and power in Matthew chapter 20, where The wife of Zebedee brings her two sons, beginning in verse 20 of Matthew 20. And she came to Jesus with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And Jesus said to her, what do you want? Now there's another great question from Jesus. What do you want? Now I think this is also a question we should stop and consider for ourselves. Solomon was asked this question, was he not? What do you want? I mean, suppose for a moment that the conception of Jesus is that he's some sort of genie in a bottle and he can grant you three wishes. Whatever you ask for, you get. Um, What would we ask for? What would we want? What is it that we want from Jesus? Why have we come to Jesus? Have we come to Jesus because we think Jesus is going to give us something to make our life better, to make our life easier, that will chase all our troubles away, that we'll be financially secure, we'll never have health problems. What, what is it that we're looking for? Jesus also asked, 
What are, what are you seeking? What are you looking for? He asked his disciples. I think in some ways in my past when I've read this narrative, I've, I've been a little bit hard on the mother of James and John in my mind. You know, I've thought, wow, what a, what a self-seeking thing to do. But, but I, I don't know, as I get older, I think of it a little differently. And I could, you know, I don't know, everybody has a different perspective sometimes on what they take out of Scripture. But as I've gotten older, I think I've been a little more sympathetic to her because I think in one sense, um, she demonstrates the heart of a mother. She doesn't ask anything for herself. I mean, she potentially has the ability, she's talking to the Son of God, right? She has the potential to have any request granted, and she doesn't even think about something for herself. She asks for something for her two boys, and she asks the thing that she thinks would be the greatest benefit in the life of her two sons. I actually see that as kind of sacrificial. I actually see that as, in some ways, being admirable. Yeah, a little misguided, a little misunderstanding here of, of, of what Jesus' calling and purpose was, but I think I'm, I'm not quite as, as condescending in my view of her as I, perhaps I was when I was younger. I see a, a woman who loves her sons, and she wants what's best for them. She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And her sons said to him, we are able. Um, now, if you know anything about church history, you'll know if you've read Fox's Book of Martyrs, for example, you know the history of the disciples, and they did drink from that cup of suffering. All of the apostles, except for perhaps John, were all martyred, and uh, church tradition tells us that he was boiled in oil and then left on the Isle of Patmos. He actually lived through an execution. Uh, so these guys definitely drank from that cup of suffering. At the time, they had no idea what that meant. They had no idea what this cup, they thought it was a cup of glory. They didn't realize it was a cup of suffering. Verse 23, it says, he said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. For many. One of my favorite authors of all time is a, a Scottish missionary from the Dutch Reformed Church who lived in South Africa uh, over a century ago. Uh, his name is Andrew Murray. Um, and Andrew Murray wrote some phenomenal books like With Christ in the School of Prayer, With Christ in the School of Obedience, Absolute Surrender. Uh, and, and a really wonderful book called Humility that uh, sounds like a pleasant read until you actually read it. <laughs> and then it just hurts really bad. <laughs> but in this book, Humility, he says this, To know the humble man, to know how the humble man behaves, you must follow him in the common course of daily life. Is this not what Jesus taught? It was when the disciples disputed who should be the greatest, 
when he saw how the Pharisees loved the chief place at feasts and the chief seats in the synagogue, when he had given them the example of washing their feet, he taught his lessons of humility. Humility before God is nothing if not proved in humility before men. Jesus didn't teach in the abstract. He led by example. Jesus taught that discipleship was this, that when a student is fully trained, he will become like his teacher. Jesus didn't simply give his students, again, didactic instruction. Every day, he woke them up and said, follow me. And they would say, where are we going? And he would say, follow me. He showed them, by example, how he wanted them to live. And there has to be that combination in discipleship of teaching and modeling. And one of the ways that leaders model is they, leader, they lead and they model through servanthood. You will never know how to be a good leader until you have learned how to be a good servant. That sounds counterintuitive, doesn't it? But it is truly the one who serves. It is truly the one who is there to give that is the one who leads the best. And this is a principle that Jesus demonstrated for us, giving us an example that we should follow in his steps. One of my favorite passages of Scripture is Philippians chapter 2. And it talks about the humility of Christ. Beginning in verse 3, Philippians 2 says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What is it about us that causes us to crave recognition, that causes us to crave adulation, that we long for the praise of other people? We want to be noticed for our accomplishments. We want to be noticed for our servanthood. We want to be noticed for our giving. There's something insidious about us that I believe we are born with. We inherit from the time that we're born. It's this almost insanity of self. Self-promotion. Self-preservation. Self-love. Self-worship. Something about us that we we are so self-centered. What's interesting about that is that God loves us and He cares us cares about us so much that in his grace and in his kindness and in his mercy, he is committed through what we call the process of sanctification of teaching us how to be rescued from the tyranny of self. And ultimately, we only have two options. We can either choose to humble ourselves or God will humble us. I mean, it'll happen one way or the other. And I'll just tell you, because I know this somewhat from personal experience, the one is far less painful than the other. <laughs> Humbling yourself is, is vastly preferable to the other option. But something will humble you. 
God will find a way to bring you low because no flesh will glory in his presence. God says, I dwell in a high and a lofty place, but also with him who is lowly and contrite in spirit. God's grace is drawn towards the humble person. We're told in Scripture that God opposes the proud. He opposes them. But He gives grace to who? The humble. If you want God's grace in your life, the way to attract the grace of God to your life is through humility. I don't know why, but it's like God, it's just irresistible to Him. He's just like, oh, I love that. And he, and he draws near to that person, and his grace is available for that person. But he resists the proud. I don't, I don't know if you've thought about what that might look like in your life to have God oppose you. You know, think about this in a work context for just a minute. Suppose you worked in a place of employment, and you had a manager, a supervisor who was above you. And this supervisor told you, I am going to oppose you in your job. I don't like you. I don't want you here. I'm going to make sure you do not succeed in this company. I'm going to make sure you don't advance, that you don't get, you don't ever get a pay raise, that nothing good ever happens to you in this position in the company. I'm going to do every single thing I can to oppose you here. How would you feel about getting up every day and going through life? You just feel like this is fruitless. This is pointless. Okay, well, your supervisor, your manager would have some sphere of authority, not infinite power probably, but some authority to be able to make your life really miserable. God has infinite ability to make your life miserable. I mean, so when God says, I will oppose you, I will resist you, you don't want that. I'm just saying, you don't want to go there. And so he says, I oppose the proud, but I give grace to the humble. Let me just read, read you some passages here. Um, and that's in uh, James 4, 6 where it says God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Let me just read some verses. 2 Samuel twenty two twenty eight says, You save a humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them down. Proverbs eleven two: When pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with humility comes wisdom. Proverbs sixteen eighteen: Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Proverbs eighteen twelve. Before destruction, a man's heart is haughty, but humility comes before honor. Proverbs 29, 23, one's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. And Isaiah 2, 12, for the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. Luke eighteen fourteen. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. C.S. Lewis had a, a great section on pride in his book, uh, Mere Christianity. And uh, he calls it, the chapter heading is called, The Great Sin. The Great Sin. And What's interesting is that some of us have a, a false approach. How can I put this? A wrong-headed approach to dealing with the issue of pride in our life. We swing to a kind of pendulum extreme 
that we think is the antithesis or the opposite of pride, and it's actually not. What we tend to do is if we have what we consider to be a high self-esteem, then we think that the remedy to our inflated, overinflated, egotistical view of ourselves is to have a low self-esteem and to talk down uh, about ourselves, to uh, be negative toward ourselves, to, to have sort of a sense of, of unworthiness and say, oh, I'm no good at anything. Um, you know, I'm, I'm just a terrible person. You, know, you probably don't want to hang around me. Uh, you know, what's interesting is that both high self-esteem and low self-esteem have actually the same common root problem. This might be a revelation for some of you. This, this might be life-changing for some of you. They, they both are, you're, both, you're still stuck in the exact same root, and that is focus on self. Self is still king. Whether you have high self-esteem or whether you have low self-esteem, the problem is you are still thinking about yourself. And that is the root of the problem. And so the, the definition of humility is not to think less of yourself. I think the true definition of humility is to think of yourself less. I like how C.S. Lewis puts this in Mere Christianity. He says, the, re- the real rest of being in the presence of God is that you either forget about yourself altogether or see yourself as a small, dirty object. It is better to forget about yourself altogether. <laughs> and this really is the purpose of humility. It's not to bring about some, some false sense of, of asceticism or monasticism where we separate ourselves away from life and we think, well, you know, I'm just going to, to go you know, live a quiet life somewhere away from everybody tucked away. But the purpose of humility, the purpose of allowing Christ and the Christ life to conquer this tyranny of self is, is not so that you can just retreat somewhere off by yourself and be quiet and humble and holy. The purpose is because now, when you finally have come to the end of yourself, when you are truly broken, when you are truly surrendered and submitted fully to the will of God, then God can really use you. And God has purchased you through the blood of Christ because he wants you. I don't want to get off on a tangent here, but you know, we throw around some phrases sometimes. We've used them all our lives so, so much so that we, we sometimes even think they're, they're true or we think they're biblical. We have all these little cliches uh, and, and we, we use them. And, and sometimes I think it skews the way that we think about things. Like even we say, Jesus died for your sins. Jesus didn't, he didn't want your sins. He wanted you. Jesus died for you. He had to get rid of the sins. You know, that was a problem. And his blood paid for that. The atonement paid for that so that you could be forgiven, so that you could be reconciled, so that you could come back into right relationship with a holy God. So the sins had to be dealt with, but he didn't die for your sins. He died for you. Why? Because he had a purpose for you. And that's what Romans 12 says. That's why Paul in Romans 12 says, in light of God's mercy, in light of what God has done for you, You should give your whole body, your whole life to him as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, pleasing unto God. This is your reasonable act of worship. This is the the reasonable response of your heart. 
And that's why Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, when he sees the glory of God and when God's glory fills the temple, and when the, the angel comes and touches his, his lips, cleanses his unclean lips, and he stands justified before God, when God says, who will go for us and who shall we send? A question God asked in the Old Testament. Who will go for us? Who shall we send? The immediate response of the heart on the part of Isaiah was, here am I, I'll go, I'll go, send me. That is the appropriate response of a redeemed, forgiven, humbled heart. When you see God for who he really is, then you see yourself for who you really are, and you have the same response that Job did, where he said, I had heard about you, but now my eyes have seen you, and now I repent myself in dust and ashes. And you have the same response that Isaiah did, where he says, I'm undone. I'm going to die, because I am an unclean man, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and I'm going to die, because I've, I've seen the Holy One. So your response is to see your own unworthiness. It's to see how insufficient you are, to see how incapable you are, to see how completely worthless and useless you are to God. That's your immediate response. But isn't it beautiful that God in his grace comes and says, yeah, but I'm going to make all things new. And in Christ, you are a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. If you are in Christ, you are no longer that. So you, so were some of you, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. So were some of you, but you were washed. You were cleansed. You were sanctified. You're not that anymore. Now you're bought with a price. Glorify God with your body. That's our reasonable act of worship. So for the redeemed heart, the person who recognizes God for who he is, who has that sense of awe and wonder and adoration and thanksgiving for who God is and what God has done for us, the reasonable response of our heart is to say, how can we serve God? The way that God wants you to serve him, this is the hard part, is through loving and serving pe people. You know, I kind of agree with Linus from the Peanuts cartoon. I love humankind. It's people I can't stand. <laughs> you know? But the fact is, there is no Christianity disconnected from people. If you read through Acts, you read through the Gospels, you read through the Epistles, it plays out in the context of real-life community, real-life relationship with imperfect people. And that's the blessing, the blessing that we have to take up the basin, to take up the towel, maybe not literally, but at least figuratively, and to serve, to do the menial tasks, to do the tasks that nobody else wants to do, why? Because we have been forgiven. We've been redeemed. We've been bought with a price. Therefore, we glorify God with our bodies. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have chosen not to look upon us and treat us the way that our sins deserve. Lord, if, if it were not for your great mercy, we would be consumed. And Lord, we thank you that you recognize our frame, that we are but dust. And Lord, we know that in ourselves, as Paul said, there dwells no good thing. There's nothing good in us. We thank you, Lord, that you've replaced that nature that we were born with, with the life of your spirit. You've given us a new nature. You've given us the ability to, to love you and to please you. And Lord, we thank you that you've given us community 
and you've given us the opportunity to serve one another in love. Lord, help us to be obedient to those commands that you've given us, not to seek to be the greatest, not to seek to be the one who takes the seat of prominence, but to take the low seat, to humble ourselves. And Lord, we know that if we do that, that you will you'll exalt us as you see fit in your own way, in your own time. Lord, we just want to do it from a humble heart because we love you and teach us to love your people. Lord, even if we don't feel like it, teach us how to love people that are hard to love. We know we can do this through your power and your grace. We commit this to you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.